Welcome to the St. Louis Young Adults Bible Study Fellowship Podcast. Today, one of our teaching leaders, Brett Tadko, will be discussing Genesis chapters 37 and 38. St. Louis Young Adults Bible Study Fellowship, or BSF, is currently meeting virtually on Zoom every Monday from 7 to 8.30 p.m. Central Time. For more information and to connect with our class, visit bsfinternational.org slash class slash 793. That's bsfinternational.org slash class slash 793. Now let's prepare our hearts, open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 37, and join Brett as he shares truths from God's Word. Hey, good evening. Welcome to Bible Study Fellowship. We're going to be looking at Genesis 37 and 38 tonight, looking at uh, two brothers. We're going to look at Joseph, and then we're going to look at Judah. Let me pray for us, and we'll get started. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to study your word, uh, Lord, to learn from uh, people in the past. Uh, I pray, Father, that as we look back at these men, we look back at the lives that they lead, um, we'll see how you worked in their lives, Lord. Uh, we'll see how you changed them, and uh, we will have confidence that you can do a great work in your people today, including even us. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hey, great to have you here again, Genesis 37 and 38. Uh, we're transitioning into the generations of Jacob. But a couple weeks ago, I, I got sucked into a video on YouTube. Perhaps this has happened to you. Uh, the video I was looking at was a time-lapse video. It was kind of sped up of a luthier making a luthier, maybe I'm saying that wrong, making a guitar. And, you know, the basic idea of making a guitar is that you get some wood and then you cut away all the bits that are not guitar-ish, and then you've got a guitar. Now, the, 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 the challenge with doing this is that it takes a lot of time and a lot of tools, right? So the luthier is going to have a lot of things to cut, a lot of jigs, a lot of sanding, a lot of polishing, a lot of chisels, and a lot of specialized tools to take wood and convert it into a guitar. And in the same way, God is working through the work of the Holy Spirit, to build a church out of, out of people like you and me. First Peter 2.5 says, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Uh, God does not use chisels and, and items that are required for masonry to shape his people, but God definitely uses the circumstances of life to bring about refinements and polishing uh, of the people that will become this temple, this house that God is building. And we're going to look back at two brothers. We're going to look at Joseph and we're going to look at Judah. And, you know, we're going to see both these characters, both these men have some rough edges. And we're going to see how God is beginning to change them and shape them into the people that he would ultimately have them to be. Uh, and I think that's going to be our ultimate aim is, is to learn that God shapes and polishes and smooths people through life circumstances. God shapes and polishes and smooths people through life circumstance. God's goal is to make us more and more uh, look like his son, Jesus Christ. And we're going to see some of the ways that he did that in the lives of Joseph in the lives of Judah, uh, these, this contrast of these two men 
in the Old Testament. So um, let's go ahead and grab your Bibles. We're going to be in Genesis 37. We're going to look at 37, chapter 37, for information about Joseph, and then chapter 38 for information about Judah. So first of all, I mentioned this once before really briefly, but 37 chapter 1, with Jacob's back on the land. He's back on the land of Canaan. Uh, we've seen God provide land, seed, and blessing for Jacob. And we're now told that in Genesis 37 verse 2, these are the generations of Jacob. So we're going to be shifting our attention to Jacob's children. The first one that we learn about in in detail in this passage, we've met the brothers last week. Uh, We've met some of the older brothers. We've met uh, Levi and Simeon and the way that they sought revenge for what happened to Dinah. This week, we're looking at one of uh, the younger, one one of Jacob's younger children. It's a child of his old age. His name is Joseph. He is the eldest son of Rachel. Uh, Rachel was the beloved wife of Jacob. She has died. Uh, And at this point, uh, we are going to see that Joseph is young. Uh, He's a young man. He is 17 years old. And uh, he is a shepherd. He's, He's a shepherd along with his brothers in the land of Canaan. So just those are the two pieces of information about Joseph. We're going to look at a couple of twos. Uh, two things that strained relationships between Joseph and the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. First of all, one of those things was Joseph gave a bad report about them. Uh, And we can maybe commend Joseph for this. He was willing to stand apart from his brothers. He was able to evaluate their actions with some sort of moral compass and not stand with them. And that takes a certain amount of courage, especially when there's more of them than there are of you, and they're probably a lot bigger. Another second reason that there was some straining of this relationship between Joseph and his brothers was favoritism by Jacob. Now, this may not have been Joseph's fault, uh, but it was represented by this by a, a, a fancy coat that Joseph was given, and and this favoritism resulted in some additional discord between Joseph and his brothers. Now, another uh, thing that happened to Joseph is that Joseph had two dreams. Uh, two dreams. One of the dreams was about wheat sheaves. He specifically identified the wheat sheaves as belonging to his brothers, and one was uh, Joseph's. And those wheat sheaves bowed down to Joseph, and he told another dream to his brothers. And it was a dream about the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to Joseph. Now, the Joseph's communicating these dreams to his family didn't help the intra-brother relationship. Not only had there been favoritism, not only was there this bad report, but now there's these dreams that Joseph is telling his brothers about uh, that are causing some turmoil in the family. It resulted in greater jealousy of the brothers and even a mild rebuke from Jacob. What we have to remember is that so far in Genesis, when we've seen dreams come into the narrative story, those dreams have always come from God. The first time we saw it was Abimelech's warning about Sarah, who was actually Abraham's wife that Abimelech had taken for his own wife. We also had a dream where Jacob had a vision of a ladder of angels ascending and descending to heaven when he was at Bethel. And then uh, one other occurrence in Genesis was when Laban uh, was coming to meet with Jacob and was warned by God in a dream to say nothing either good nor bad uh, to, uh, to Jacob. So we see that this, this turmoil in the family uh, sort of exacerbates itself as we get into chapters, verses 12 through 36 in uh, chapter 37. 
Uh, ultimately, Joseph is going to be sold uh, to some traders who are bound for Egypt. So Joseph is on a mission that he was given by his dad to go find his brothers. They were roughly 60 miles from the family home in the Hebron area, uh, due north along a ridge. Ricky always gets this, this great map out here. So Hebron is down here. Let's see if I can get it here. Hebron is down here on the south. And Dothan is quite a ways up here in the north. So it's about 60-ish miles that, that Joseph would have had to ultimately travel. He first went to Shechem, which I thought was ironic that here was the place that, that uh, God had had to miraculously remove the family from. And now the brothers are back at Shechem, tending the herds. Maybe they were looking for the gold that got buried underneath the tree. We don't know why they were there, but they had gone further north to the area of Dothan. And so they're quite a ways away from home. They're out in the wilds of the land of Canaan. They're tending the sheep. Joseph is walking to his brothers, and they see him coming. Now, the plot that they came up with was to murder Joseph. Uh, they felt that would be the easiest way to get rid of Joseph in his dreams. And uh, we, can, we can also see that, that Reuben involves himself and says, let's not kill him. Let's just put him into this pit. And so that's Reuben's suggestion. Uh, his, Reuben seems to have potentially been wanting to leverage this situation, perhaps, to get back underneath Jacob's good graces. Reuben had had uh, intercourse with Bilhah back in 3522. Bilhah was one of Jacob's wives, and this may have been an opportunity that Reuben saw to uh, reestablish his position in the family uh, by currying favor with Jacob, by essentially saving the life of Joseph, his favorite son. One of the other things that I think is ironic is that ultimately, Joseph's decision to tell his brothers about the dream precipitates their fulfillment. Right? This was the beginning of a series of chain of events. Right? Joseph is now thrown into a well, thrown into a pit. He's going to be sold, and he's going to end up in Egypt. And this is going to be the way that, that, the, that God is going to work the fulfillment of these dreams, uh, which is that uh, you know, the brothers were so irritated, so jealous, that, that Joseph had told them about these dreams. Well, rather than killing Joseph, the brothers decide at Judah's recommendation, we'll learn more about Judah in the next chapter, well, why don't we make some money on this deal and let's sell him to this passing caravan of Midianites or Ishmaelites. And so that's what they decide to do. They received what would have been a fairly standard price for a slave at that time, 20 shekels of silver. And um, they then decide that they are going to deceive their father, Jacob, with a cloak and some goats. So not dissimilar from the deceit that Jacob pulled on Isaac. Uh, now Jacob's sons are going to deceive him with cloak and goats. So Joseph uh, is now on his way down to Egypt. Uh, we know that Jacob is mourning. He's mourning the apparent death of his son. And we get this, uh, this, this teaser at the end of chapter 37 that tells us that Joseph has ultimately been sold to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. The principle for this first section is that God can choose to lead his people over some rough roads. God can choose to lead his people over some rough roads. If you think about the house that you live in or the apartment that you live in or the place that you live, how many different ways can you think of to get to your, your house? Right, whether you're walking, whether you're driving, my own house that I live in, there's at least three ways, three main ways 
that I could have somebody you know navigate to my home. Some of those are a little simpler than others, right? So if I'm if I'm telling someone to come here who's never been here before, what I'm probably going to do is give them the easiest route, the most simple way to get from wherever they're coming from to my house. You know, I could say, okay, park in Brentwood Forest on North Swan Circle, walk through the park, three houses down, cut through the backyard, hop the fence, boom, you're there. That's a little more complicated than just saying, you know, come down the road and park in front of my house and walk to my front door. Uh, and and so, we, we, you know, GPS tends to operate underneath the same premise. It's going to give you a route to some place. It might not be the only route. It's going to be the simplest route, more than likely. And, and what we sometimes think is we think that God operates according to, you know, the rules of like GPS navigation. If God has something he wants to accomplish in my life, he's going to take the quickest and most expedient and easiest path to get me from point A, where I am right now, and point B, where God wants me to be. Right? Isn't it obvious? Isn't that what, you know, isn't that what you and I would want God to do? The reality is, is that he doesn't always do that. Uh, there were probably simpler ways, easier ways, more direct ways, ways that would involve Joseph not being a slave to get him from where he was in Dothan down to where he was going to be in Egypt. Uh, but God chose this path for Joseph. It was a hard path. Uh, Joseph, as we'll see in the coming weeks, is going to have some blessing by God everywhere that he is, but some definite hardship in his life. He is going to be falsely accused. He's going to be imprisoned. He's going to be forgotten about. And, and we, we say to ourselves, isn't there an easier way? And there may be a way that's easier. There may be a way that's quicker. There may be a way that's simpler, but it is not the path that, that God chose uh, for uh, Joseph And there might be things in our own lives, your life and my life, where God is choosing us to go down pathways that are difficult and tedious and challenging and painful. And we wonder if there's an easier way, and there probably is. But in his wisdom, God has chosen to have us go down that pathway. Why? Is God sadistic? Does he want to punish us? Does he want to bring about pain and discomfort in our lives? I I think the whole of scripture would tell us no. But God is looking to do something in your life and in my life with the hardness that we face, with the challenges that we face. God is trying to take us from the people that we are today and make us more and more like his son. And that can oftentimes only be accomplished with difficult paths, difficult roads, and difficult journeys, much like the one that Joseph walked. Uh, So a question for us to consider is, you know, what part of your journey that you're on right now feels a little bit like it's off or just wrong or way too hard or way too painful. I think a good question for us to think about is, you know, what might the Lord of the universe be doing with that circumstance? What what could God do with that challenging situation that you're in? Perhaps it would be in your life, right? Joseph is going to experience some things in his own life through this difficult circumstance. But also, God has a plan for what he wants to do in the life of Joseph's brothers. So maybe this difficult circumstance that you're in is not just for your good. It could be for somebody else's good, for someone else's benefit. If we think about some of the collective experiences that we've shared these last 12 months, whether it's been quarantine, financial loss or hardship, uncertainty about jobs, fear about our health, you know, what is it that God might be accomplishing through this collective journey that we've been on 
as we've dealt with coronavirus over the last 12 months. I think a good lesson for all of us is to think back on some of our past experiences and say, how did God use that? How did God use that hard circumstance in my life? How did God use that hard circumstance in my family to ultimately bring about something that was good and brought glory to God? I think we also want to make. I want to make a note about the, the, the these events that that we've seen here. First of all, uh, Joseph's brothers willfully sold him into slavery. This is a heinous sin. Uh, this is a terrible thing to do to somebody. Um, and I think what we have to keep in mind is that just because God chose to use this event to further His plan, His mission. It is not a validation of the sin. Uh, Joseph's brothers were guilty of committing a heinous crime, regardless of if God used it or not. So there is still personal responsibility, even when God chooses to work through the sinful acts of people. We saw this, you know, even on the cross. Jesus' death was ultimately part of the master plan, but it, the guilt was not removed from those who crucified him. So, and the other thing that I want to point out about this is that true followers of God should never justify their behavior, their sinful action, by claiming, well, God's going to use my sin to make you a better person. That is just not true. And so we need to be careful. We need to be careful with, with the way that we, that we look at these events. Uh, just because God is able to use sinful acts it does not mean that God is providing validation or remediation or some way saying that, oh, that's okay, no problem. You sold your brother into slavery, but it was my plan, so we're all good. That is just not, that is not true. Joseph's brothers are responsible for the actions that they took. And I think the other thing we need to keep in mind as we look at uh, narrative portions of Scripture, we've mentioned this before, Scripture is is. is Narrative portions of scripture are very often descriptive. They tell us what happened. What happened to Joseph? He was thrown into a pit, sold as a slave. They're not necessarily prescriptive. So we need to, we need to wrestle through that. Uh, just because we're going to go through the rest of the book of Genesis and we're going to see Joseph, right, a victim of a violent crime. We're going to see Joseph reconcile with his brothers. We're going to see them be reunited as a family. And it's a beautiful thing. But it would be wrong for us to say that the Bible prescribes reconciliation for all victims of violent crimes. Right? I think we need to be cautious about that. Certainly, if we have, if, you know, in the eternal state, when everybody's in heaven, when Jesus is returned and, and, and everything's been made new, there will be real reconciliation, first with God and man, and then with men and women with each other. But the reality of this life is that there are some wounds that are too deep to heal, and there are some times when reconciliation is not the right path to take. So just be cautious. Be cautious about the way that we look at narrative passages in Scripture and be aware that Scripture is definitely descriptive, but not always prescriptive for the way that you and I are to live and to carry out our lives. Let's take a look at Judah. We've, uh, you know, we've, we've looked at Joseph, we've seen the interaction of the brothers, some of the things that happened in that story. Let's look at Judah. We're going to see how, you know, in, in Joseph's life, we're going to see how God used some, some challenging sibling dynamics 
to bring about some changes in Joseph and also some changes in, the, in his brothers. We're going to look at Judah now. We're going to see how God is going to use some in-law dynamics to bring about some changes in Judah's life and in Judah's heart. Now, what's interesting about the story that we come to in chapter 38 is that the normal pattern in the book of Genesis is that once we've wrapped up the entire story for one of the biblical characters, we then see the sibling, right? So we, we, we had all of the story about Jacob. And then we heard about Esau, right? We, we heard about you know Esau's descendants and his family and all the things that they did. When we did everything that we needed to know about, about Isaac, and then we looked at Ishmael, right? So the, the pattern has been to not interrupt one story with another story. But here we are, we're in this pattern, we're, we're looking at Joseph. We, we have this cliffhanger situation where Joseph is now in Egypt in the house of Potiphar. And then what happens? What happens next? We want to go to the next episode. The next episode is Judah, So pay attention to the fact that the author of Genesis has deviated from a pattern that we've seen heretofore. We're we're really supposed to look at this passage and take note of it. It's, It's positioned in such a way to draw attention to it. And so there's something that the author wants us to know or to learn or or to respect. Uh, about this story, and it's a it's a it's a weird story. It's a weird interlude. It's very sexual, and it's 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 an unexpected uh, turn of events, certainly in in the, the narrative of Scripture. But we're going to look at Judah. Judah's left his brothers, and he's going to go dwell in the company of the Canaanites. Now we've seen how this has gone before. It didn't go well for Lot when he went and dwelled uh, down by Sodom and Gomorrah. So we can see right away, Judah runs into problems as well. He uh, starts hanging out with a dude named Hira, and he gets married to a Canaanite woman who is the daughter of a man named Shua. Uh, He has uh, three children in this relationship, and the reality is, is that heretofore in Genesis, marrying a Canaanite woman was never presented in a positive light. And so in this situation, I think we can say, probably not the best choice for Judah to do. But he has three children, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. We meet right away as we get into verse 6, a woman named Tamar. Now Judah wanted to find a wife for his son Ur, and so he brought in this this presumably Canaanite woman named Tamar to be Ur's wife. Well, before they were able to have children, before that, that relationship produced any offspring, Ur was struck down by God for his wickedness. And that's all that we know. We don't know what he was doing. We don't know why God chose to strike him down. We got nothing. But we know that he was wicked enough that God selected to take him off the face of the earth right away. This made Tamar a widow. And so Judah then, Judah then asked his middle son, Onan, to raise a family through for Ur through Tamar. Now, this is a practice that's called Leverite marriage. It's mentioned a couple times in the Bible. It's mentioned in Deuteronomy, and it features prominently in the book of Ruth with the story of Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. Uh, Leverite marriage was something that was clearly practiced in the area, and it became something that was prescriptive for the people of Israel. The the idea is, is that the brother-in-law would have intercourse with the, the widowed woman and would produce a family so that the line of the elder brother would not die off. And that was Onan's responsibility. Onan was willing to have sex with Tamar, but he was not willing to impregnate her. And we see that with the information about spilling his semen on the ground. 
uh, this resulted, this was uh, offensive to God. It, it, wasn't, it, it wasn't that God was somehow saying that birth control is a problem. It was the willful disobedience that Onan had for his leveritic responsibility. And so uh, God strikes Onan down. Tamar is once again left as a widow. Judah sort of give, Judah gives like a pinky promise, cross your fingers promise that, you know, hey, Tamar, once my son Shayla is old enough, you know, he'll fulfill the Leverite responsibility with you. The reality is, is that Judah was afraid that his third son would also die. He had no intention of offering uh, uh, Tamar to be Shayla's spouse. And and so uh, Tamar goes home. She's dressed as a widow. She's living with her family again. And then we have another part of the story, which is Judah and Tamar at the city of Timnah. Now, Tamar gets word that Judah would be at Timnah, and it's hard to know exactly what her motivation is. Was she intending to go and pose as a prostitute and, and get pregnant? I mean, maybe. Um, that would, that maybe that would, that sounds kind of weird to our ears to hear this. Uh, it, it sounds, it's unusual for a woman to be so desiring to be a, a, a mother that she would go to such extremes. Um, but perhaps she was going to confront Judah about, about she, uh, Shayla, who is now, you know, old enough to become her husband. Uh, a veil was not a universal mark of prostitution. Many women who were betrothed wore veils. So perhaps she was just planning to go in to make a point to Judah, like, hey, I am betrothed. I'm supposed to be betrothed to Shelah. We really don't know. But what we do know is that Judah sees her and he begins to negotiate with her about how they can have uh, intercourse. He, he assumes that Tamar is a prostitute and he comes up with a with a he, they're fixing a price right i mean there's no there's no other way to describe this but Judas brokering a deal to have sex with with someone that he feels is a prostitute they come up on a price the price is going to be a goat Judah doesn't have a goat with him and so he essentially gives Tamar an IOU here's my staff here's my signet here's my cord i'll trade them for a goat later on uh, and so we read in the narrative that Tamar becomes pregnant through this uh, through this interchange. She goes back to her family's home, dresses as a widow once again, and uh, Judah attempts to complete the this transaction, the goat transaction with the prostitute. She cannot be found, and so he's unable to retrieve his items from this person. Hira is acting as his intermediary, uh, and then we, we sort of wrap up the story of Judah and Tamar at Timnah. Three months later, Judah finds out that Tamar is pregnant. Uh, word of this pregnancy got back to Judah, and Judah rashly pronounces a judgment on Tamar for her apparent immorality. Uh, she is to be brought out and burned. Uh, this might seem like a, a, a drastic action, uh, but this must apparently have been the, the, the judgment for immorality at that time. Uh, Tamar then plays her trump card, as it were. She brings out Judah's items, and she says, This is the man who is the father of my child. The signet ring, the cord, and the staff identify Judah as being the man who has uh, engaged in immorality with Tamar. What we do see is we do see a change in Judah. Uh, We do see him really come back off of his judgment. He makes the claim, She is more righteous than I since I did not give her to my son, Shayla. Uh, and then, and then it, what it seems like is that Judah brought Tamar into his home as his wife. He did not have intercourse with her again, but it does seem like as she gives birth uh, to twins, uh, it does seem like she was living in Judah's home 
as uh, as Judah's wife. Uh, we, we get information about the twins. This is, again, it's a unique twin birth. There's two boys. One of them gets an arm out. They mark him. He brings his arm back in, and then Perez is born first, and then his uh, slightly younger brother named Zerah. Now, the people who were reading this, the people of Moses' day, would have potentially understood if they were from Judah's tribe. Uh, Perez and Zerah had clans of people who were identified in Judah's tribe. So this would have provided a little bit of information to the people of, of, of Israel as to who was their ancestry, what did it look like. But the main reason, and we, we know this because we, we have the benefit of biblical history on our side, is that uh, Perez is is uh, one of the he is an ancestor of the man named Boaz who we learn about in Ruth. We know that Boaz and Ruth ultimately produce Jesse and uh, the kingly line of David. The Davidic line comes through Perez, and ultimately Jesus was going to be a descendant of the Davidic line. So the significance of Perez is that Perez is a direct male ancestor of Jesus. This was going to be a kingly line that would come from this very strange uh, relationship between Judah and Tamar. The principle for this section is, is that God does not discard his people when we fail. God does not discard his people when we fail. If we look at the decision-making paradigm of Judah in this passage, we, we really are saying, like, what kind of a thought process is going on here. Uh, but, you know, as you and I think about the lives that we live in, there's so much, so many of the objects that you and I use in our daily lives, we're just going to throw them away as soon as they get old, as soon as they fail the charge, as soon as they break, we're just going to pitch them away. We're going to throw them out. And we're seeing in our culture, the, the cancel culture that has arisen, is that people are discarded when they make an unwise post or a thoughtless post on social media, or they hold a controversial opinion, uh, people are just discarded from their workplace, from the jobs that they have, from their responsibilities. Uh, today's hero is ending up to be tomorrow's trash. And the good news for Judah and the good news for you and for me is that God doesn't operate like this. God doesn't look at the decisions that we make and the decision that Judah makes and decide... Done with that one, dodged a bullet there, going to move on to somebody else. Um, God has decided that Judah was his guy. God has decided that his son, Jesus Christ, was going to come from the Judaic line. Why? Judah seems like such a loser. Doesn't matter. God had a plan for Judah. We're going to see Judah change as we continue to read in the book of Genesis. God had a plan for Judah. God loved Judah. And God was going to change Judah through some of these hard circumstances and some that we'll read about in the coming weeks to, again, have a man who develops to become more and more into, into looking like what Jesus Christ looks like. Uh, God does not discard us when we fail him. Perhaps you can think of decisions, actions that you've taken in, in your recent past or in your distant past that you regret, that are sources of shame and pain for you. Maybe you even think that some of those decisions that you've made, you're just, you've, you've gone too far. Uh, there's just no way back. There's no way that, there's no way that God could possibly uh, be able to um, use you, work with you, accomplish his plan for you. You're just a lost cause. 
because you've made so many poor decisions. Friends, the people in the Bible have made poor decisions uh, right and left. We have not seen that hidden from us. And we know that God has the ability to redeem and restore in, in, in ways that are mysterious and powerful. Um, I think one good thing for us to consider as well is how has God changed you? How has God changed your heart after you've made some poor decisions, after you've come back to him, after you've been in his presence? Uh, how have you seen your life changed? Because God continues to work with you after bad decisions and bad situations come into your life. Well, I think as we wrap up tonight, you know, similar to the luthier that we talked about making the guitar at the beginning, God is shaping his people uh, to be those living stones, to, to be more and more like Christ, to have a role in his house, to have a place in his family. Now, if we could talk to the wood, if we could talk to the wood that the luthier is shaping, chiseling, sawing, and cutting, I imagine the wood would complain. It would be like, that was very uncomfortable to be sanded for 17 hours or whatever it would be. Uh, The bending, the sawing, the shaping, the cutting, uh, the wood probably feels, if it could feel, the wood would feel uncomfortable being put into its new shape of becoming a guitar. And similarly, the changes that God is working in your life and in my life, they're not going to make us comfortable. We're not going to feel great. When God is working on us, when God is taking off our rough edges, when God is ripping out uh, the parts of our life that don't fit with the pattern of Christ. But we can be confident that God is working to accomplish good for us, good for, good for all of God's people, and ultimately to bring glory to God himself. Let's pray. God, thank you for uh, sticking with us. Um, there are many times in the Bible when it might have been easier or more expedient or more direct uh, for you to discard your people, for you to discard the nation of Israel, for you to discard Judah, for you to walk away from Joseph. Uh, but Lord, you chose to stay engaged and to continue to bring about change, heart change and life change in, in those people. Lord, do that for us. Um, help us to stand up underneath your shaping and your sanding. And Lord, uh, help us to see the progress that you're making in in, in changing us from people who are always sinful all the time to becoming more and more like your son, Jesus. Pray all this in your name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the St. Louis Young Adults BSF podcast. Join us next time on Zoom on Monday, March 22nd at 7 p.m. Central Time as we discuss Genesis chapters 39 and 40. To connect with our class, like us on Facebook at STLYABSF or visit bsfinternational.org slash class slash 793. Bible Study Fellowship is an international, interdenominational, nonprofit organization that is dedicated to studying God's Word one verse at a time and strengthening the local church. For more information, visit bsfinternational.org. That's bsfinternational.org.